And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Every journey begins with its first step. Every story has a beginning. Every hero has an origin. Back to the Bins proudly presents Origins. Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. My name is Scott Gardner and joining me for this episode is my good pal David A. Pascarella. How's it going, Dave? Great. How's things with you? I'm awesome, man. I am really pumped for uh, for tonight's show. This should be a lot of fun. We're uh, we're kind of launching something uh, new and bold and different. But I, I'm gonna let you, uh, since this is kind of your baby, you 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 know came up with this whole thing. I'm gonna let you uh, uh, kind of uh, explain the backstory and what we're doing with this one. Well, thank you for the credit. So if it falls and collapses, <laughs> I get the full blame for the debacle that it would be. You saw right through me. I know how you operate. That's why I love you, man. <laughs> well, as you know, I'm a big fan of the JSA and the whole uh, Earth 2, you know, universe. And I've been on a reading project lately where I've been reading through the Golden Age comics. From the first issue of Detective Comics, I'm working my way on through. I'm up to... 1941, right before the war starts for us. And I thought to myself, it would be fascinating to take a look back at how not only the characters have, you know, started, but how they've evolved over the years. And I thought it would be interesting if we were to take a character starting with the Golden Age and basically delve into the book's where we were fed the origins. Because some of them, you know, it's in the first appearance, bang, they tell you what happened. Other characters, it's down the line where they develop it or they just hold out on the origin. I mean, Batman's origin wasn't in that first appearance. Right. So I, I thought it would be interesting to go through the origins of these characters. And who knows, depending on where this takes us or the popularity or if we're enjoying it, Maybe at some point we move on. You take a comparison of the Golden Age character versus the Silver Age incarnation, maybe up through the Bronze and the Modern Age, if we live to be 112. <laughs> <clears throat> but that was the idea, and I, I thought we would call it. You know, originally I was thinking something working it into the JSA. I don't think we should go there yet, do you? As you say, this this has potential to, to grow you know, so far beyond that scope of just the JSA that uh, I, I think we kind of just settled on origins. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we'll, we'll kind of concentrate on those Golden Age characters more or less tied to the JSA to start with. But I, I don't think we're going to stay, you know, to that narrow focus because there's a lot of other characters that I, I know you and I would, would like to look at as well. So it may start very JSA-centric, but I think it, it you know, It'll quickly move beyond that. There's no barriers here, is what right. we're saying. We're not right. going to be pigeonholed. And that's why our first character is going to be D-Man, right? 
<laughs> well, I'm I'm really excited. I think that's why I'm I'm so you know doing the the homework on this very first one. You know, with a with a character that's that's so near and dear to both you and I. And like yourself, you know, I'm on a read through project too. Um, I'm just keeping my my read through focused to Superman. Um, but I did, you know, start rated action one and I'm reading through it. I'm somewhere 1943, 44, somewhere in that area. And it's fascinating to find out how much you don't know about a character that you've read and enjoyed your entire life just because he his history goes so far back and up until very recent times the the golden age has largely been a huge blind spot for me mostly by choice um i've i've had kind of a, a prejudice against it all these years because the few times i ever dipped my toes into it especially when i was a kid it just really always came off to me as really shitty art and really stupid stories. Mm-hmm. And that's really giving it a disservice because now that I've, I've, you know, I don't know, matured or whatever's gone on with me that, you know, I've actually had an interest to go back and, and look at that stuff again. I'm finding that there's a lot to love there. It's just a different era and you kind of have to try to mentally place yourself in that era. Like, what what were people like? What were they thinking? And um, especially as we go on, because comics, at least with Superman, I'm noticing, didn't start out as kitty fodder. You know, by the time you and I were coming along, you know, as kids and reading comics, comics were pretty much aimed right at kids and generally not the smartest kids. But well, yeah, but it's 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 more than just the comics. It's that whole change of attitude i think that came about in the 60s because if you you even look at the cartoons from the 40s you know right the police and the the bad guys all have tommy guns and they're shooting at each other and then you come to the super friends you don't see a gun on that show for anything exactly and and that's kind of my point is that you know much like you know, it's hard to imagine today, but, you know, those old Bugs Bunny cartoons, just, you know, to pick one as an example, those classic Bugs Bunny cartoons, they were shown in theaters to a mass audience. They weren't just for kids on Saturday morning. That came years later when they were replayed on television. So much in that same light, the earliest comics, um, especially like the Adventures of Superman, Batman, a lot of these characters were intended for a mass audience. And so adults read them, too, because they hadn't yet developed a stigma of just being kitty fodder. And so they, they tended to tell a little more adult stories and, and deal with a little more adult topics. And it, I don't think it was honestly until the whole thing with Wortham and all that where comics did eventually get dumbed down because – Somewhere along the line, they were deemed as kitty fodder, yet look how violent they were and how, you know, all the things that were going on, not realizing that by doing what they did, then they actually created the thing that they thought comics were, which was kitty fodder by creating the code and dumbing them down and taking out all the violence and that sort of thing then they they created that very thing. So it, it's kind of sad because it didn't start out that way. And that's been one of the interesting things in, in this read-through project is 
just seeing what a very different character somebody like Superman was way back when and how different the the stories were and the types of stories that they were telling. Well, he's definitely the the uh, social crusader. Right. When he starts right. out. Right. With the tenements, rising the tenants, ten, tenements and beating up mine owners and stuff like that. I mean, there's <laughs> even one where they send in the National Guard to stop Superman from destroying housing that's basically slums. Right. We're going to we're going to talk a little bit about that as we go along here because, you know, as we say our first character in this origin segment is uh, is going to be Superman. And so basically how this is going to work is that we're looking at the origin of Superman and how it changed over time with subsequent publications and retellings and We'll talk even a little bit about how outside, you know, things outside the comics medium affected him as well, such as, you know, the radio show and the, and the serials and that sort of thing. And basically how his comic book origin and personality changed over time. So that, that's kind of the focus of the show. This is going to be a long one and we're splitting it into two just because we are looking at several books. So Hopefully I'll remember at the end of this first segment to give you the homework for next time, you know, the books that we'll be looking at uh, to kind of conclude the Superman segment. But are we ready to go ahead and dive in on this one, you think, Dave? I think so. All right. So Superman, unlike uh, some other characters, did get an origin in his very first appearance. As most everybody knows, Superman first appeared in Action Comics number one, uh, which was cover dated June 1938 was actually on sale on the stands, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, on uh, May 3rd, 1938, for a mere 10 cents. Superman was, of course, uh, written and uh, and created and drawn by uh, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. They came up with him, and so that first story is by them. His origin in Action Comics number one, you know, it's the first origin of Superman. It was a brief one-page affair on the opening page of this, his very first appearance. Uh, actually, when one takes into account the final two panels that are in reality a so-called, and I quote, scientific explanation of Clark Kent's amazing strength, then the origin itself isn't even a full page because, you know, there's that segment at the bottom. So it consists of a mere six panels, uh, one of them being text only. So the first panel tells of an unnamed planet dying of old age and an equally unnamed scientist placing his infant son into a hastily devised spaceship and launching it toward Earth. A passing motorist in the next panel discovers the landed craft on Earth and turn the child over to an orphanage where presumably he was raised. There is no hint of adoption by a kindly couple or otherwise. The third panel shows the infant possessed of amazing strength and holding furniture over its head, which will become a common thing in his origin, uh, while the orphanage attendants gape in astonishment. Upon reaching maturity, Clark Kent, uh, with no hint given as to how he came by that name, uh, discovered he could leap an eighth of a mile hurdle a 20-story building, raise tremendous weights, run faster than an express train, and nothing less than a bursting shell could penetrate his skin, something that would change pretty quickly. 
and so he decided, for whatever reason, to turn his titanic strength toward benefiting mankind as the champion of the oppressed, the physical marvel, Superman. And the scientific explanation, by the way, consists of informing the reader that there are already creatures on Earth possessed of super strength. The lowly ant who can support weights far in excess of its own or the grasshopper who can leap distances that to a man would equal city blocks in length. And that was their uh, their so so-called scientific explanation. So that's really all you get with this is that, you know, he came from another planet and, and that was it. So there's no hint of, you know, gravitational differences or, you know, the, the sun affecting him or anything like that. So. Yeah, they um, give you they give you that little PSA at the end, which is now you know, and no right, right. the battle. Right. <laughs> so I'm gonna pull out my physical copy now. Not that I have a physical copy of Action Comics number one, mind you. This where you, story has. Where do you been, live again? I, I just <laughs> yeah, right. this story has been reprinted. I mean, so many times. I'm not gonna go down that whole list, but in my opinion. You can't do any better on the reprints than um, famous first edition C26, which is a treasury sized um, what they would call today a replica edition, except it is in treasury size. So it's huge and it's beautiful to look at, um, but it is an exact reprint of that issue um, just with a new cover on. It. As a matter of fact, for years, the comics, uh, the Overstreet Comics Price Guide would warn uh, about this issue that you know, with the cover removed, it was practically worthless. But apparently at some point, somebody got scammed and actually bought some issue that famous first edition reprinted thinking it was an original because again, without the, the new cover on it, you know, the treasury size cover on it, it, it's an exact reprint. So I just found found that amusing. I remember reading that every year in there and going, how, how dumb could you be? It's a, it's nowhere near the same size. But anyway, did you want to run with your notes first on this? Well, there's really, I mean, it, there's really not, there's not a, you know, a, a lot to pick at. I mean, I, I guess it's interesting that you only get one shot of Superman in the suit. You know, right. the, the leaping right. over a building he, he's dressed like Clark Kent, running faster than the express train, which is still a steam engine at the time. Right. He's in a suit. And he's in overalls lifting up the uh, I-beam. On that one, the uh, the panel that's raised tremendous weights and he's holding the I-beam over his head. Now, notice not only is he dressed in, you know, like workman's clothes, like an overall, and all, but there's there's a crowd of people standing around like agape at what he's doing. And I want the story on that. What's going on there that he's demonstrating his powers in, in you know, in plain sight to all these people? And, and we get none of that. So it's just a complete mystery. But I find that really kind of fascinating. He's a little backwards at this point. He's going, what, what, you all can't do this? <laughs> right. <laughs> As I said in the synopsis, neither the planet nor the scientist is named, so that, that would come along much later. Really, the only inkling we get of the society of the planet that he comes from is, you know, there's just the one page, or the one panel shot of it is that it's vaguely futuristic, a la, like, 
Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon, and that that's about it. So we don't we don't get much on that whole thing. Right. I mean, from the size of that panel, it could be in, in Cleveland for all we know. <laughs> I like on the panel where he's lifting the sofa chair over his head, and again, we we would get this. In just about every subsequent mm-hmm. uh, origin, the shot of, of, you know, the little baby holding the, the furniture over his head. I like, and this would change quite a bit, too. It says uh, that the attendants are unaware the child's physical structure was millions of years advanced of their own. Now, that would change. It would go to thousands. And then I'm not even sure. I think eventually they kind of dropped it because... They eventually do drop the idea of Kryptonians being an advanced people. And I always kind of liked that. I, I like the idea of the, the race of Superman type of thing. Right. How, how do you feel about that? I, I, I kind of agree with you. I, I, I think you need that. If they just regular Joe Sixpack but has better technology, I think it loses something. It makes it a bigger tragedy in the loss of Krypton. Right, that they were, yeah, that they were an old society, an advanced society. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with you. I mean, I don't know. I I, kind of wonder if maybe it helps sell him a little bit, you know, his powers a little bit more if it's, if it's you know the the whole you know he was born that way type of thing you know that he he comes from an advance so you don't have to because i know i don't know if it's so much a thing anymore but i know like around the time that like john byrne reinvented the character um after crisis on infinite earths that a lot of people and Byrne in particular seemed kind of hung up on how do his powers work which Mm -hmm. is fun but i try not to get too hung up on that because i think you can kind of go crazy trying to scientifically explain like every power of superman so i i think the advanced society thing works for a lot of it if his people could innately do a lot of the things that superman does on earth if it was just part of his makeup already Right. And then maybe, you know, some of the things that they couldn't do, like maybe say like heat vision. Well, he gets that from the sun or the ability to fly. Well, he gets that because of the lighter ground, you know, that sort of thing. Right. So it, it gives you fewer things to have to explain, you know, if, if people are going to get hung up on the details type of thing. I also think that because this was so revolutionary for the time. Right. There's there was nobody who had powers before this. Right. I mean, there were some other comic book characters, but not like a super powered one, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Not in the comics. Now, he he borrowed, you know, Jerry, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster borrowed very liberally from other existing characters. But there were really no comic book characters out there, you know, certainly no superheroes. The closest um, thing is mythology. Right. Right. I was just reading somewhere. I forget where it was because I did a lot of homework for this. And one of the things I was reading, you know, there's been a lot of debate over the years whether Siegel knew about the novel Gladiator when he sat down and created Superman. And I, I think there's some pretty substantial evidence out there. Well, something I was reading 
was saying that DC or, you know, the company that would eventually become DC, they knew it too, that, you know, that that novel existed and how close Superman was to the main character of that novel. And so they published it, but with the understanding that, you know, if there was any qualm whatsoever, if anybody raised any fuss, they just cut the feature. So, you know, that, that adds a whole nother level to what, what kind of a miracle it was that Superman ever made the printed page in the first place after getting rejection and rejection and, you know, reworking and all that, that, you know, one of the reasons that they did finally publish him was, well, we'll, we'll take a chance on this, but we don't have a lot of faith in it. And, you know, if anybody makes a fuss, then, you know, we'll just deep six it type of thing. So I find that really kind of fascinating if, if that's a true story. Well, I'm, I frankly, am not familiar with gladiator. I mean, other than like the Russell Crowe movie. (laughs) Now there's something completely different. Does Um, he have superpowers in gladiator? He he does. So Gladiators uh, is uh, about a character named Hugo Danner. And uh, I actually had him elsewhere in my notes here. So skipping ahead just a little bit where, where Clark, it, you know, it says in the dialogue that, you know, Clark decided. And again, it doesn't tell you why he decided. We, we kind of get that later, like why he does what he does, but not in this first origins but anyway he decides we'll get a retcon to that yeah yeah essentially yeah but you know he decides to use his powers to benefit mankind and my question was why but also what kept him from going down the same path as hugo danner or suffering the same pitfalls so hugo danner was was the main character of um a novel by philip wiley i forget what year that novel is i want to say it's in the 20s 20s or early 30s but it predates superman and basically it's hugo danner is proto superman so his his dad was a scientist that comes up with a formula and injects his pregnant wife with this formula so that when hugo's born and and starts to mature much like young clark kent he finds that he's different from other kids and he's basically he's super powered and basically, he had about the same power level as Golden Age Superman. And so there's a lot of parallels between these two characters. But where they diverge is that Superman became, you know, a superhero, you know, wore the costume, fought for truth, justice, all that sort of thing. And was, you know, on the side, more or less on the side of good, although in his earliest adventures, you know, he often did butt, you know, butt heads with the law. Whereas Hugo Danner was a little more morally nebulous definitely not a crime fighter not a crusader not a superhero but you know just a simple guy trying to do the right thing but he's gifted with all these amazing abilities and so tries to find his way in the world and unfortunately just has like one bad thing after another happen to him because of these abilities that make him kind of a a freak in society. Um, For example, like in college, he plays football and he's a rising star, but during one game, he accidentally kills another player just because he's so much more powerful than everybody else. And it's a complete accident, but it kind of sends his life into a spiral. 
And it's that sort of thing throughout the entire novel where the guy just can't catch a break. And it's these amazing powers that are are a curse to him rather than a blessing or anything that he can use, again, for the benefit of mankind. And so I just find it really fascinating that the two characters are so incredibly similar, but went down completely dissimilar paths with their lives. And, uh, and it's really interesting. Right. Almost like mirror images. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Uh, let's see. I just had a couple other notes real quick. Um, again, just the passing motorist is not shown. Uh, so we don't know if it was a male or a female or how many people were in the car or anything like that. Again, the hint that he was raised in the orphanage because there's no mention of adoption or, or anything like that. And yeah, that's pretty much my notes on uh, on the brief origin in uh, in Action Comics number one. So moving on uh, in 1939, a year later, uh, Superman's origin was expanded uh, first in the daily newspaper where uh, his home planet and parents were given names. The inhabitants were said and shown to be a race of advanced super beings. His father pled uh, his case to the council in an attempt to save everyone from destruction. And the quote unquote passing motorist who looked remarkably like Dr. Occult in the newspaper strip. I was uh, going to say Dick Tracy, but I think Dick Tracy right. or, or Dick Tracy. Yeah, either one. Uh, he was actually shown, but again, not named. Also, that same year, 1939, Superman number one hit the stands on May 18th, and for the cost of a dime, readers would learn more about the Man of Steel from the two boys who had created him. Superman number one opens, just like Action Comics number one before it, to the origin of Superman, but this time expanded out to two whole pages. This time, the planet is named Krypton, of course, and again, that was first in the newspaper. But again, we are only told of an unnamed scientist placing his infant son in the rocket and etc., etc. This is very odd, considering that the newspaper strip origin story consisted of 12 daily strips, 10 of them taking place on Krypton, one entirely of the rocket speeding through space to Earth, and only one covering the baby being found and growing up to become Superman. This origin in Superman number one is almost completely flip-flopped because you have only one panel covering the destruction of Krypton and the rest of the two pages covering the, boy, uh, the baby being found, raised, and eventually becoming Superman. So it's just really interesting. And, and it's uh, a loss, too, because the newspaper strip really gives you a lot more detail. Particularly, it in, does. Aside from, you know, it gives Jorel with just the L as opposed to the EL we would get. But it shows them demonstrating the, the superpowers of the advanced race. Yeah, Jorel actually leaps, you know, just like Superman would in the early years. You know, he actually leaps buildings and things as, as he's running back from. Uh, his meeting with the council, uh, you know, to his wife's side and everything. Yeah, we get a lot in that newspaper origin um, that a lot of stuff that would stick, you know, a lot of stuff that would would form the basis of the later, more popular versions uh, in the comics. In the second panel of the first page, the rocket reaches Earth and the 
passing motorist, last name Kent, no first name given, uh, gains a wife, Mary. Uh, initially, just like action number one's origin, the infant is turned over to an orphanage, which I find funny. It's called an orphan asylum here, <laughs> where again, you notice, you notice uh, how is, that'll change, too, <laughs> from uh, right? orphanage to orphanage asylum to foundling home. <laughs> right. Again, he astounds the staff with his feats of strength. This time, however, the Kents return to inquire about adopting the child, and the administrator is all too happy to be rid of him before he wrecks the joint. Superman gains a very important piece of his makeup in this telling, as we are told that, quote, the love and guidance of his kindly foster parents was to become an important factor in the shaping of the boy's future. So I like that because that fills in what I feel is a missing part of the puzzle in the action one origin is like, why, why did he become super? Why did he decide to use his powers to benefit mankind? Why didn't he just take over the planet or, you know, something like that. Mm -hmm. And we see young Clark being mentored by his foster parents and told he must hide his great strength from others, lest they fear him. But when the proper time comes to use it for the good of humanity, and again, we are treated to scenes of leaping an eighth of a mile, hurtling skyscrapers, though this time as a child, implying that he grew up in a city. That's what it looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Raising tremendous weights, outrunning trains. And again, the comment about nothing less than a bursting shell being able to penetrate his skin, complete with a doctor breaking his sixth needle on uh, Clark's skin, trying to vaccinate him, which is one I always like that shot uh, with the passing of his foster parents. Clark grows determined to use his great skills for the benefit of mankind and becomes Superman champion of the oppressed. Again, my, you know, this has been reprinted and reprinted and reprinting. My personal favorite reprinting of this is famous first edition C61 from 1979, which again is a, um, is a treasury size book. I have it right here. I'm about to break it open. I don't think this one is um, what you would call like a facsimile edition. I think this one is, but I don't remember. Let's see. No, it is. I take it back. Once you get past the cover of the treasury proper, it has a second cover inside. And on the back, it has the original ads. It has every, yeah. So this is a essentially for all intents and purposes, a facsimile edition of Superman number one, which is really, really sweet. But in the oversized format, it's just awesome. It's a great, it's uh it's a great cover too. Yeah. I love this cover. Yeah. I really like this one. I just want to throw out there. I have in my collection, a small bronze statue of Superman in that position. With the comic book, you know, the front cover behind it that was gifted to me by Paul. Oh, that's awesome. Yes. I like, uh, I forget when it was. Had to be, had to be late 80s, I'm thinking, when George Perez came on to Action Comics after it returned to monthly status from being Action Comics Weekly. Yes. He did an homage cover. Um, that's essentially this cover to Superman number one. I have the the retail promo poster of that, and it is gorgeous. Yeah, that was the first issue. They went back to the monthly format, right? Yep, yep. 
Sure enough. Okay, tell me one thing in this panel here, bottom left panel, where there are the Kensa meeting with the orphanage folks. Uh-huh. I could see those roles being played by, uh, uh, what's his name, Glenn Ford and Ned Beatty. <laughs> Actually, I think Mary Kent looks more like Marlon Brando right there in that hat. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. They look like they're going to shake down the orphanage for money. <laughs> Be a shame if this place burned down, wouldn't it? <laughs> it really does look like a shakedown. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, yeah, poor Krypton really gets the short shrift because, I mean, it's only in the very first, uh, essentially the, in the title panel, and it's blowing up. I mean, we get nothing. We don't get a glimpse of the society. We don't get anything. We just get the explosion and the rocket, and that is a very Buck Rogers rocket shooting out. Oh, it. significantly Buck Rogers. Yeah. It's cool, though. I like it. And, and, but you compare that to these panels in the newspaper strip. You know, Jarrell running at top speed, surviving wreckage, lifting up large weights. Yep. The only reason I could think, and giving it so much, you know, depth to the story, the only thing I could think is maybe they want it. It's got to be completely original material. You know, if it's going to be in the newspaper or it was in the newspaper, because I'm not sure... When the newspaper came out as opposed to the comic book. 39. Right. They're both 39. Yeah. So I don't know. Uh, here. The first strip, it says in the book here, uh, January, first 12 strips, January 16th, 1939 to January 28th, 1939. Now that's the daily newspaper. Right. So what was publication of? Superman number one. Not until May. May eighteenth, nineteen thirty nine. So yeah, the uh the newspaper predated it by six months. Or so, I'm sorry, by, by by about five months. So maybe there was some issue with hey, you can't reprint, you know, material that we've published. Or we don't want to print material that's already been published. There's, Which is there's a shame. probably a bit of yeah, there's probably a bit of that because that whoever you know owned the the newspaper portion, there probably were some you know some rights issues and that sort of thing. But also back during this time, it's it's my understanding that these guys really wanted to be you know that that most people that were in comics they aspired to be in the strips, you know, the newspaper, because that's where the money was. That's where the, you know, the quote unquote fame was and all that. So they, they were aspiring to be in the strips. So I I think to a slight degree, an argument could be made that they were bringing their a game for the strips as opposed to the comics, not to say the comics aren't great, you know, and, and really enjoyable and everything, but having read, a good portion of both now. I can see where the the strip developed a little bit quicker and a little bit more evenly than than the comic. And when you when you concentrate on the comic, you know, trying to de- to follow the, the development of the character, if you do that in a in a vacuum without looking at the strip or anything, 
then it can be a little bit disjointed because he just suddenly makes evolutionary leaps. But when you do that read in conjunction with the newspaper, then every, everything starts to gel a little bit. So I, I think that the character over the years has been a, been done something of a disservice by those newspaper strips not being more readily available until until fairly recent years when they finally got some really nice you know reprints and bound editions and that sort of thing because that stuff's really really good too but it's just not been as visible over the years yeah definitely and i think we have to again make note we said it before Jor-El is J-O-R-L. Clearly, that's right. the the Earth Two designation, and his mom is Laura L-O-R-A. Yep. From here, we would of course get the radio show, the novel, which I actually just read for my very first time just a couple of weeks ago, and enjoyed it thoroughly, and uh, and really, really thought it was. I thought it was a lot of fun. That is on my want list. I have yet to score a copy. I, I enjoyed it. My my only issue with it was um, I don't have a physical copy, so I had to rely on a uh, on a CBR that I was able to track down. And right toward the end of the book, it was missing a few pages, which really kind of sucked. But I was still able to more or less follow the the narrative and everything at the at the end of it. But it it was really enjoyable. I liked it. But I especially liked the beginning part of the story um you know his growing up in smallville and all that and i didn't realize until sitting down to do this project and put everything in kind of a timeline order how much that novel even though the novel's largely forgotten today really did inform the character because it was the novel that placed the kents on a farm for the first time that basically made them farmers and i thought that that was really interesting Mm. you also had the cliffhanger serial and probably the, the biggest development between Superman number one and the book that we're about to look at next was that uh, a major part of the mythos came along and kind of eventually would change the character quite a bit as far as his origin story. More Fun Comics number 101 saw the debut of Superboy. So suddenly Superman had been a superhero as a child, you know, had worn the costume and had superpowers and all that, which was a big departure from these two established origins. But what's really interesting is the the book that we're about to look at next makes no mention of that. It, it wouldn't be for actually quite some time before Superboy ends up being incorporated into Superman's origin, even though he's right there on the stands as well. So it's kind of interesting. And that's where some debate comes in now, right? Because Earth 2 doesn't have a Superboy, right? Correct. The Earth 2 Superman was never Superboy. So it's clearly Earth 1. Well, Mike Voyles that runs uh, Mike's Amazing World, Mike makes the argument that More Fun Comics 101 is the establishment of Earth One, that basically it's the first Earth One story. And I can kind of see where that argument is coming from. I mean, I I think it has a a, a fair amount of validity to it because it's the first time you've got a major ongoing character and story that doesn't jibe with everything else that's, that's going on at the time because this Superman 
even though for a time they're they're going to be published concurrently this superman is what retroactively becomes the earth 2 superman so there there is a more or less clear delineation although we will look at at least one origin that kind of muddies the waters a little bit with that um because it's a golden age origin of superman that does mention superboy so it makes it a little bit hard to like okay what which what incarnation are we talking about we'll, we'll talk about that one a little bit further down the line are you implying this wasn't all planned out from the beginning <laughs> well that's the thing is you know so much of this you have to remember comes down to retcons you know and superboy is to my mind anyway the first major retcon i mean now this whole thing that we're looking at with the origins of superman of course each change they make and each thing they flesh out is in itself kind of a retcon but superboy is the first like real like in your face retcon like we are completely changing everything you know this this character didn't debut as Superman. He's actually been around since he was a, a child, you know, in right. the costume performing super feats. And it, I, I find that really interesting. It's almost like the Superman family looked at Batman and went, hold my beer. <laughs> now, our next book, we're jumping way ahead to the 10th anniversary of the character. And we're at Superman number 53 has a cover date of July, August, 1948, for a grand total of 10 cents. It was on sale May 5th, 1948. Editor is Mort Weisinger, and the title of this is The Origin of Superman. As only a story of this magnitude can, our story opens with a splash page. Taking up the entire bottom right quarter of the page, We see a large, distressed Superman holding his head in his hands. The bottom left corner of the page contains a text box explaining that this story, the origin of Superman, in quotes, will reveal all the exciting answers. Taking up the top half of the page under the Superman logo are two oddly dressed figures inside what can only be described as an explosion waving farewell to an odd-shaped ship that is blasting away. The story begins with a brief rundown of the many powers of Superman. Titanic strength, impenetrable skin, and x-ray vision, to name but a few. Superman has dedicated these miraculous powers to the constant war against evil, as well as to aid worthy causes. Now for the first time ever, we will be given the answers to who Superman is and how did he acquire his invincibility. On the planet Krypton lives a highly advanced race, blessed with high intelligence and magnificent physical perfection. Five-year-old children are typically adept at calculus, And due to the far greater gravity of Krypton, if a Kryptonian were on Earth, a normal step would allow them to leap over the tallest building. But not all is well on the planet Krypton. Quakes from deep within the planet shake the surface. Jor-El, Krypton's greatest scientist, arrives to report to the Council of Five, 
in the Hall of Wisdom. The planet is doomed. Krypton's core is composed of uranium and will soon explode like a gigantic atomic bomb. Jarrell urges evacuation to Earth. The Council mocks him, accuses him of attempting to seize power, and dismisses his suggestion of evacuating to Earth due to the primitiveness of its inhabitants. As Jarrell arrives home to his wife, Lara, the quakes increase. Great fissures open in the surface. Jarrell urges his wife to take their child and escape the doomed planet in the spaceship he has built. Lara elects to remain with her husband, but agrees to send their child into the void of space. As the pitifully small spaceship hurtles through interstellar space, the once mighty planet Krypton explodes into stardust. The ship comes to rest gently on the planet Earth. The ship is found by an elderly couple. Upon removing the child, the ship consumes itself until not a trace remains. They bring the child to a foundling home and express their desire to adopt him. They are told that they must be investigated first and will be contacted. Pretty much their version of don't call us, we'll call you. The child begins to exhibit strange traits, super strength, the ability to leap up to the ceiling, and an impervious skin. This causes quite a disruption in the home, and the staff decides the best way to handle it is to get rid of the child by letting the elderly Kents adopt him. The child is given the family name of his new mother and becomes Clark Kent. As Clark grows, he realizes he's not the same as other children. He's hit by a tractor and not only survives, but destroys the tractor. He discovers he can outrun an express train, leap over the house, and has x-ray vision. Clark grows to manhood, and his ma passes away. When his pa is on his deathbed, he tells Clark that he has amazing powers and can use them to be a powerful force for good. To fight criminals best, he must hide his true identity, so they never know that Clark Kent is a Superman. Clark gets a job as a reporter on a big newspaper to be kept apprised of those who may need his help. Clark wears glasses and pretends to be timid, but when his help is needed, he dons the costume and becomes Superman. And there we have the origin. Love it. I love it. It's a powerful story. It, it, it is. It absolutely is. And um, just to kind of fill in the blanks here, I was really surprised. If, now, I, I am very familiar with this story um, because this one was in superman from the 30s to the 70s and i've had the hardcover of that book since i was a small boy and just read it voraciously over and over and over again but it wasn't until you know really sitting down to do the homework for this episode that i realized that this is actually written by bill finger if someone had asked me i'd have said it was jerry siegel but siegel was gone by this because this, I, I believe, was after the point where he and Schuster tried to sue DC 
and were just unceremoniously dismissed. So if you look at Siegel's body of work on Mike's Amazing World, there's a, a big gap between about 19, I, I want to say it's like 49 and like 1960-ish, some, you know, some, I mean, it's a big old gap of, of more than 10 years. And that's because they, they let him go uh, and didn't bring him back until much later. So I, I was just kind of shocked to see that this was Bill Finger. But I, I love this. I mean, this in so many ways. Now, granted, it's kind of pulling everything together at this point. It, it's bringing in stuff from every source. It's bringing in stuff from Action Number One, Superman Number One, from the serials, from the the cartoons, from everything. Everything that is except more fun comics 101 superboy's origin which i find really interesting because this is several years later so superboy's been around for a while because that superboy story is in 44 i want to say so it's this is this like is that, several yeah. years later and you know the character's around and right out of the gate he was trumpeted as you know the adventures of superman when he was a boy so it's very, very interesting that he is omitted from this otherwise very authoritative origin that, uh, you know, as I said, pulls all those disparate elements together into one, finally, you know, one authoritative and cohesive origin story. It's funny, you know, I always, always, every time I, I look at this story, I always confuse the splash for the cover. And I think think that's because I, I don't have it in front of me, but I think in the reprinting of this in Superman from the 30s to the 70s, I don't think they include the cover. I think the story starts, the reprint starts with the splash page. So in my mind's eye, I always think of the splash as the cover to this book. <laughs> so that's it, just odd to me, but I love the cover. I think the cover is fantastic on this. I believe, and I'm just looking here. It's very similar to a statue that they put out in the uh, early 2000s. You know, they were doing those uh, cover statues. Right. There's one that's very similar to this. I, I don't know if it's based on this cover, but there's definitely that one with the cape flying straight backwards in that pose. It's an iconic cover. Oh, it is. I, I would love to have a statue. I'd like to have a poster or something. I, this is great. But, you know, for me, I, I've been hard pressed my entire life to be able to pick my favorite Superman artists. But I, I think if you put a gun to my head, I'd probably have to go with Wayne Boring. I love Wayne Boring Superman. I always have from when I was a kid, even even given my general disdain as a kid for anything golden age, I still loved Wayne Boring. It's just, he has such a unique style. I just love his stuff, especially when he would do Krypton or like alien worlds or like futuristic cities. He, he just did it better than anybody. I, I always felt I loved his Krypton. I, I just loved the, the whole look of it. I mean, this is great. He's just bringing his A game on the, on this whole issue. The art is just fantastic on this. I, I, I just absolutely love it. And it, the thing is, there's a simplicity to it. I don't mean yeah. simple. It's it's it has a simplicity, a simplicity, but it's gorgeous art. Yeah, it is. It is absolutely beautiful. 
And I, I mean, I, I love the complexity of some of the shot, like the city shots. I mean, you, you, you feel like you could just step into them, you know, like they have depth to them because yes. they go way back. And, and it's not just a simple background. It's not just two figures talking in like a monocolor background. It's I mean, there's there's detail, there's depth of a type that you didn't often see in old comics like this. So it, it has that feel for me of like the early cartoons, you know, where you look at early Disney's or early, like Warner brother cartoons and they had such depth and richness and they were beautiful painted images. And then by the time you get to, you know, the Saturday morning cartoons that we grew up with, I mean, animation was just rushed out crap for kids mm-hmm. and comics kind of sort of had the same thing. You know, the best of the best comics, which Superman was, uh, you know, during this time were, were so rich in the art and the depth and, you know, and the work being done. And, you know, then you get later on with with certain comics and, you know, everything's a rush job and they don't bother to put that that level of detail. Even sometimes when you had the best artists like, say, Jack Kirby, you had guys like Vinnie Coletta coming behind him in a racing detail, you know, that sort of thing. So I, I love this just for the richness of the detail in it. Yeah. Uh, let's see. I have a few notes on this one. This, this I love this story. I absolutely love it. This this has always been one of my favorites. I think the the only one I like better than this one is uh, Superman's origin in uh, Amazing World of Superman by uh, E. Nelson Bridwell, Kurt Swan, and Murphy Anderson in uh, in 1973. Now, of course, that would be a Silver Age version of Superman, um, and it's and it's somewhat different from this. But it's also shockingly similar to this. It has, you know, generally the same beats, and some of the art is actually not swiped necessarily, but but homaged because you've got the sequence where, you know, the baby is actually lifting up the doctor and you know hanging from the light fixture and things like. So a lot of this, you know, very similar beats, jumping over the house and outracing the train. So not, you know, not swiping the art necessarily, but definitely swiping scenes and then recreating them in, in their art style. And and so I like that, you know, this this really is, you know, the first definitive origin that we got in the comics. And that's got to be why it commands the prices it does, because I would love to have this book in my collection. I'll probably never get anywhere near it because it, it's a pricey issue. But I can see why it's fantastic. Oh, absolutely. I had just a few notes. Um, I like that they they call out some of Superman's villains, the prankster, the toy man, Luthor. They refer to his uh, social crusader background. I just want to say the uh, Kryptonians must have used their uh, supreme telescopic technology to watch the buck rogers serial and modeled their entire dress wardrobe after it <laughs> just to be a little snarky as well uh Jarrell's timing to let the council of five know that the planet was doomed was pretty poor even <laughs> if they bought into this when were they going to build these ships you know i kind of think lara really should have went with the child to be honest with you you're going to send your child off to a planet of primitives by itself. 
Uh, if the ship had landed a few feet to the right, it would have taken out the Kens. <laughs> Uh, I do think it was a cool aspect, and I remember they did this when they made the television show in the pilot episode that the ship just burns itself up, so there's no evidence left. Right, right. Or more than likely, they didn't want us reverse engineering it. I do find it kind of amusing that, you know, no one is amazed by Clark's abilities, particularly the guy who was driving the tractor. That gets destroyed when he hits them. Yeah, see, that's another one of those instances where I want to know, you know, who, who's this guy? You know, what's what does he do with this knowledge? You know, does he just forget about this? He's buried in the field. <laughs> oh, no, let's go back to the place, you know, the house and have a cup of tea and discuss it. And Martha clocks him with the shovel. <laughs> he winds up in the fruit cellar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty much it. They don't give names to the Kents yet, other than their last name, right? There was no Jonathan and Martha mentioned. It's on the tombstones at the end. Oh, that's it, though. Yeah, see, yeah. I missed that. Well, you know why I missed it, because your eyesight is much better than mine. <laughs> I have to blow this up or get a magnifying glass. All right. And lastly... At this point, pretty much if you follow just what's published, we know more about Superman's origin than he does. Yes, we do. And we're going to address that one in just a moment. I had a couple quick notes on this one. Just you know, again, going back to the, uh, the the recap of Superman's powers page here. Um, I like where he's using his x-ray vision and he's uh, he spots a bad guy that's waiting for a copy he says stop nitro kale is waiting for you behind that bill nitro kale that sounds like one of those gluten-free hippie superfoods or something nitro <laughs> okay whatever i love the shot of superman smashing luthor's robot but luthor is literally falling to his death from that height and you know falling head first the way he is right there i just thought that was funny I love, even though it's not the traditional outfit, I love Jor-El's outfit here. I, this is fantastic. I, I, I love this whole thing. It uh, even has like the little, uh, it's almost like a rank insignia or something on his collar. It's just great. What a great, you know what he looks like? He looks a lot like Amazing Man that would eventually join the, uh, the All-Star Squadron. His outfit's very, very mm-hmm. similar. Or rather, I should say, Amazing Man's is very similar to to this, but uh, I love it. I love his. The other outfits of the other uh, council members, eh, they're okay. But Jor-El's is snappy. I really like that. There is a uh, a shirt that I've seen online that's it's colored differently, but it's basically this shirt of Jor-El's with the with the Saturn-like planet on the front. One of these days, I'm going to order that shirt just because I think it's cool. Don't get it, because you'll get very upset when someone walks up to you and goes, oh, are you the Lego spaceman? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> now, just a quick note. He is referred to as Jor-El, E-L, in this story, which for all intents and purposes places it as an Earth-1 story. But... Eventually, once Earth 2 becomes firmly established as a concept, his name would then change to Jor-El, just the letter L. 
And from that point on, um, that would differentiate the two continuities, you know, L for the family name and the Earth-1 continuity, E-L, and then just simply the letter L for Earth-2s. So, you know, there is that with this. I love the whole thing with uranium and the atomic reaction being the, the cause of Krypton's destruction. That that would also kind of fluctuate over the years as to what exactly was, was Krypton dying from. It's already changed here, the, the idea of what separates Earthlings from Kryptonians, because remember in the Superman number one origin, it, or actually was it, no, it was action number one, sorry, he was millions of years advanced. Well, one of the council members says, uh, we have observed Earth people with our ast- uh, astro telescopes. They are thousands of eons behind us. Okay, I think that's a shorter amount of time than millions of years. I also like the other one uh, says why they do not even possess X-ray vision. Again, hinting at innate abilities. So this is still, even though we don't see any demonstration of like superpowers or anything, Jor-El just simply runs back to his apartment. He doesn't, you know, do the fantastic leaps or whatever. There's still some hint of innate superpowers in the people that that Superman's coming from. So I like that, but it's it's starting to kind of fall by the wayside even at this point. I love there's there is. And again, this is so strange because Superboy is not mentioned in this at all. But there is one line here in this origin that is lifted almost verbatim from Superboy's origin in more fun comics. One oh one. You've got the one council member that says we have had quakes before on crypt. We have had quakes before and Krypton is still intact. And there's a council member that says almost the exact same thing in that book. So I find that really interesting. Page five, first panel. I just had a note on this that this is no joke, no exaggeration. This is one of my favorite comic book images of all time. I don't, I can't tell you exactly why. I just love this image of Jor-El running through the, the streets of Krypton. I why didn't always... he just take his car? That's <laughs> <laughs> the Batmobile. Yeah, I know. I don't know if the eons ahead of us. That does look like a 1930s car. Yeah, it definitely does. Yeah, it it looks like a proto-Batmobile. It really does. It just needs the big bat face on the front of it. It would would be great. I love the Kents in this. The Kents give me a total like Aunt May vibe because they're much older than than pretty much any other version of of the origin, I do believe. Because, I mean, they they look quite elderly here and... you know, Jonathan especially, you know, he's very frail and gaunt and everything. And Aunt May, I mean, yeah, Aunt May, <laughs> Martha Kent, rather, Mary Kent looks uh, very Aunt May-like. I mean, she is, she's like an old school marm or something. It's just funny. But I almost wonder if, like, are they coming from church or something, the way that they're dressed? And it's it's just, it's really funny. But uh, but I, I love them in this. I, I like that we actually get, you know, scenes with them. The mother dies first, which I just thought was worth noticing, uh, noting in this, which she did in the prior one as well. The Kents are firmly established for the first time in comics as uh, as being farmers. Again, that comes from uh, the George uh, Lowther novel, the Adventures of Superman novel. Oh, I love this. I really liked this catch. So as John Kent lays dying. Um, and he's talking to his son about, you know, the mission he, he wants him to go on. He says, there are evil men in this world, criminals and outlaws who prey on decent folk. You must fight them. 
in cooperation with the law. Now, that's not how Superman started out. Superman mm-hmm. was an outlaw in those early stories. There's a lot of the early stories where the police are hunting Superman. So I, I just found that really interesting. That I think that almost qualifies as a, as a retcon. Sergeant Casey's always trying to arrest him. Yeah, yeah, in those early stories, yeah. And again, the parents' names are on the tomb. So we have John, which is pretty close to what it eventually became, and Mary Kent, so not quite Martha yet. Um, This book, this story rather, has been reprinted so many times. Probably my favorite one is Superman from the uh, 30s to the 70s. However, I have noticed an error that is both on Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Sorry, Mike. And also, on, strangely enough, DC Comics' own wiki regarding this issue, it claims that this story is reprinted in Three Dimensional Adventures number one from 1953. Now, that's the technical name of that book. You probably know it better as simply Superman 3D um, from 1953. There is an origin of Superman story in that book. It is remarkably similar to this, but it is not this story. And time permitting in our next episode, we'll, we will actually take a look uh, at that particular book, at that particular story. But I just thought it worth pointing out that uh, sources on the Internet are wrong in regards to that particular um, instance of reprinting. That is not correct. This story is not found there. So by now we've seen uh, Superman's origin several times and have learned new facts in each new retelling. But while we know the full story, the Man of Steel himself, now over 10 years old in publishing time, still hasn't a clue as to his true uh, heritage, nor why he possesses powers and abilities far beyond mortal men. That is until the third and final story in Superman number 61, November, December 1949, in a story entitled Superman Returns to Krypton. It is written by Bill Finger, yes, that Bill Finger, with art by Al Plastino. In that tale, Perry White assigns Lois Lane to investigate a phony fortune teller going by the name, are you ready for this? Swami Riva, <laughs> oh brother, and warns her to be careful as he may be dangerous. Overhearing this, Clark Kent decides to tail her as Superman, anticipating that the girl reporter will get into trouble as she always seems to. Sure enough, she doesn't disappoint and runs afoul of the Swami. Superman dives out of the sky to rescue her, but the Swami, in a panic, spouts some gibberish and tries to psych Superman out by pretending to put a hex on him. To both his and Superman's amazement, this actually works! Superman is suddenly zonked and drained of energy, so much so that the Swami is able to knock him out simply by throwing his hands around and accidentally striking the Man of Steel. The Swami flees, leaving behind a baffled Lois Lane and, when he revives, Superman too. Emboldened by what has happened, the Swami finds himself the new darling of the underworld and goes on a crime spree, believing himself unstoppable due to his newfound powerful hex ability. Superman tries to intervene, but again succumbs to the Swami's hex and gets the shit kicked out of him by gangsters. 
Perplexed and publicly humiliated, Superman goes on a mission to figure out this hex business. He starts at police headquarters where he learns that Swami Riva is actually Dan Rivers, former carnival swindler and associate of one Mooch Carlin. Superman pays Carlin a visit and is told how Rivers decided to go into the Swami racket, deciding to adopt a turban guise complete with large jewel to impress the saps. Superman checks in with Acme Jewels to inquire about the stone and finds that the cheapskate Rivers couldn't afford a real gem, so settled for a cheap shiny stone instead. The jeweler shows Superman a smaller version of the same stone, and the Man of Steel suddenly feels the same dizzying effects and soon learns that it's the stone, not the hex, that's putting a whammy on him. Superman then flies to where the prospector who supplies this jewelry store operates and inquires about the stone. The prospector tells that he only ever found those two stones of that type, a type he couldn't identify and has never seen before or since, and that he believes them to be meteorites. So Superman takes the only sensible action available to him and just simply flies back through time, tracking the meteor's course to its point of origin. Sure, okay. That turns out to be a planet far outside Earth's solar system. There, Superman, in phantom form for some reason, is able to witness an advanced civilization and a peoples of great intelligence and physical perfection. Suddenly, a man that greatly resembles Superman himself casually strolls by, and the Man of Steel follows him to his home. This man is Jor-El and he tells his wife, Lara, of his failure to convince the Council of the impending doom of their world due to the uranium core of the planet approaching critical mass. Just then, a distant rumble becomes great groundquakes in the final death throes of a planet about to destroy itself. Jor-El instructs his wife to enter a model spaceship, but she refuses to leave his side. Instead, she places the child into the rocket and steps back with her husband to watch its departure, both of them facing their deaths together. Soon the planet explodes, and the ghostly Superman, intrigued to know the fate of the infant soul survivor, follows it through space to where it eventually settles, of course, to Earth, and is found by an elderly couple, Clark Kent's foster parents. Now Superman understands why he's different from other men. He's from another planet! And those meteorites, they're from that planet, too, changed somehow by the cataclysmic atomic forces that destroyed his world into a radioactively lethal substance. Soon, Superman tracks down the Swami again, and this time uses his super breath to knock the shyster's turban off before confronting him. Superman lands, and the bald-headed Swami attempts to lay another hex on our hero, only to receive Superman's jeering laughter in reply. Superman makes short work of the Swami and his fellow bad guys. Later, Superman returns to the jewelry store to purchase the remaining meteorite and requests that it be sent to a Mr. Smith at the waterfront. A messenger boy eventually delivers the package to Mr. Smith and departs. Mr. Smith sheds his disguise and the Man of Steel pulls a lever to dump the deadly meteorites into the drink. Somewhere in trackless space, Superman monologues, there must be more particles of kryptonite. I hope none falls to Earth again. Perhaps it may never happen, but perhaps it may. 
perhaps it may happen again and again and again and again, especially in the Silver Age. Uh, but that is the end of our story. What do you got on this one? Oh, it's a great story. <laughs> I like how it actually is part of a story as yes. opposed to a standalone origin. The the Swami thing, that's been done before. Yep. I, I, I almost think it was... A, and, you know, I went looking through all these old Golden Age, and I couldn't find it. But there's definitely a Golden Age one where it's the same plot, where Lois is going to reveal that the Swami guy is a fraud, and, of course, she gets caught. So I, I found that very amusing. <laughs> uh, I initially was a bit confused when he, he goes to stop the robbery in the hardware store, where I thought... I thought, I guess he was just being creative in the way he was, you know, apprehending them, because it seemed like he didn't want to get physically close to them. And I wasn't sure if he he was still thinking that he was under the hex, but I think he was just screwing around with him until the Swami <laughs> shows up. I like how he nails the guy to the wall. Clearly, they haven't established that kryptonite is green. I find it interesting that the Kryptine scenes so closely mirror Superman 53, but the coloring is slightly off. Yeah, my note for that is, is Jor-El colorblind? Because his outfit, while it is, like, if, if this was a black and white image, you'd never know. It looks exactly the same, but the coloring, as you say, is different, and it's horrid. Absolutely horrid. Well, that scene at the bottom, uh, pages don't have numbers. The uh, page where we see the whole planet Krypton and he's walking like away and Superman's a ghost. He's like, I don't mm-hmm. even want to look at you people. <laughs> Jeez. I'm a little fuzzy with the whole how Superman can fly backwards in time, become a ghost and then go to a planet with the red sun. But, you know, I'm willing to just roll with it. (laughs) I don't understand why he is a ghost in the first place, unless this is playing into that whole thing of a person can't exist in two places at once. Because I I know I've seen this before in, in, you know, in pre-crisis stories where a, a character would go back in time and they're in phantom form because they're actually in a time period where they already exist. Right. So I guess that's why, but it still doesn't really. Yeah, I don't. Well, they they play fast and loose with that because sometimes he's able to exist and sometimes he can't. I I remember Superboy going back to save Lincoln and he can't do it because he's a ghost. Well, there's also that story. um, I think it's also called Superman Returns to Krypton or something to that effect. The one where he goes back and falls in love with Lila Mm -hmm. Laurel. Yeah. Now, it could be argued he's not a ghost in that one because he hasn't been born yet. But it's still, I mean, I, that's a stretch, I think. It's it, it's just like you say, they play fast and loose with it. Sometimes he is, sometimes he isn't. So, eh, Whatever. You know, it meets the needs of the story. Right. It's amazing. It so closely mirrors the last issue we did, other than the, the addition of the Swami story. Yeah, I was trying to find if we actually glean any new information in this, 
And honestly, I, I don't think we really do, but kind of the reason I, I wanted to cover this one was I, I find this one fascinating because this is where he finds out who he is and where he comes from, which for me, you know, a lot of my fascination, a lot of my interest with Superman being so informed as a kid by Superman, the movie. I mean, that's a huge part of that movie is right in the middle where he goes to the fortress and, you know, the ghost of his father, you know, tells him his whole, you know, backstory and his mission in life. Well, here the character is what? 11 12 years old you know as a as a fictional character in you know in mm-hmm. continuous publication before he even knows any of that and it, it also lends into a, a missed opportunity of i would like to know what what did superman himself think you know, how what did he think he came from prior to this and i don't think that was ever explored i don't think there was to my knowledge anyway there was ever a story where superman tried to figure out like why am i this way he just kind of embraced it just kind of r- rolled with it so did he think he was like a like a mutant freak or something like a freak of nature or i could see it being his parents telling him you were born with special gifts that god god gave you right and leave it at that and he accepts it. I, I also, you know, I wonder, did they, did they tell him how they found him? You know, did they tell him that they found him in a rocket? I don't know. It seems like they omitted that, that part, particularly the deathbed with his father in the last issue. Right. You know, you would think there would be some, I mean, granted, it could be in between the panels, but you would think that's. Key information you'd want to make sure you passed along. <laughs> you, you would, you would think so, but you know Superman is is shocked. You know on on page uh, page ten that last panel he says now I understand why I'm different from Earthmen. I'm not really from Earth at all. So I could see if they had told him, hey you're you know you're you're from you know we found you in a rocket. So presumably if you're from outer space. And, and, and the big reveal in this being specifically where he was from. But no, that doesn't seem to be the case. The case seems to be that he's shocked to even find out about, you know, being from another planet at all. So that that presupposes that the Kents never told him. We, you know, what would have been even better if he's shocked and his last words would have been, I'm adopted. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, this, that, this that was the other thing I was thinking is maybe the Kents had never told him even that much because they didn't want him to feel whatever, you know, so they, they never even told him that he wasn't their natural son. Right. I mean, the, his mother would have been like Sarah in the Bible, who was 96 years old when she had him. But <laughs> you notice in this version, they cut out the foundling home. It's they find him up. We're adopting him. His name is Clark. Kent. Right, right. That's a good catch. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that, so that is a potential change here that uh, that they didn't even take him to the orphanage. Yeah, that's a good catch. You know, the whole business with the ship burning up, maybe they did omit all that because, you, you know, we've got no evidence. He's going to think we're crazy. Well, we're right. going to make him crazy. Right. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that because we are still at that version of the origin where where there is nothing left of the rocket. You're right. That would change. 
because in that that version I talked about before, the one by E. Nelson Bridwell in the 70s, in that one, they actually put the rocket on the back of the family car and take it with them. But in this, it's uh, it's burning up. So, yeah, that's a good point. What uh, Refresh me. What year was this again? This is 1949. So, yeah, so he's been around for 11 years at this point. I wonder if the attitude would also have been a, for a person at that time. You find a spaceship, you find a child in it. Is it possible that it's not from outer space? You know, that, that the whole Russian thing. Yeah, right. I, I thought about that, but I think it's a little early for now. Granted, I, I'm talking to my ass here. So, I, you know, somebody if somebody else listening knows differently, please write in and let us know. But my understanding is that the whole that whole thing, you know, as far as like public, you know, red scare paranoia didn't really start as a thing until around like the time of Sputnik, which would have been. Oh, gosh, what year was Sputnik? 50, 50 something. Late 50. But see, yeah. this is why I say, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Because I'm thinking back to the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still, which came out in 1951, I believe. It's very early. It's 50 or 51. Right. And when the ship first lands, there's a character in, you know, the uh, the movie who's played by Aunt B, you know, from uh, Andy. Right, Griffin. right. And someone's saying to her about, you know, oh, from another planet. And she goes, ah, it's not from another planet. It's from right here. And you know where I mean, as if to indicate the Russians. So that's just why I was wondering, could there be, you know, you had the V1 rockets during the war. I don't know. I mean, he clearly looks human. No one would have thought that that he was an alien i'm looking Just, it up real quick here and because you you raise a really good point well so according to wikipedia as we know is always correct and never wrong <laughs> um there is they're saying that there were two red scares that the first red scare took place between 1917 and 1920 Right, the revolution and then the one that, of Russia. Yeah, and the one that we more commonly think of with like McCarthyism and all that sort of thing, you know, right around World War post World War Two, took place between 1947 and 1957. So I think you're onto something. There, there, there is that element to it as well that possibly they they did think he was a Sputnik baby and so kept that information from him. So that, you know, so that for one, he wouldn't be a target or anything, but also maybe so that, you know, he wouldn't. I, I don't know. It, it's it is in, an interesting dynamic. It, it's you know, again, it's a great missed opportunity for for some story potential, I think. And now we're also just a few years away from the TV show coming out. Right. Did you have any more notes on this one? I think that's about it. I have just a few jumping back ahead to uh, to right near. Well, it's uh, page 10 again, that that same panel again, where he says uh, he says, now I understand why I'm different from Earthmen. I'm not really from Earth at all. I'm from another planet, the planet Jor-El called Krypton. And eh. if you go through all the panels with Jor-El, he never says the word Krypton. So 
somebody goofed with that one. He never actually it, says it. I thought it was pronounced Krypton. <laughs> and that really begs the question, how does Superman understand anything that's being said anyway? Because for one thing, there's an editor's note that says Superman is invisible to these people because he is not of their time and doesn't exist for them. He can only view them as he would a silent movie, but he can read lips. Okay, that's way too complicated for this story, for one thing. Secondly, again, even if he can read lips, he's reading gibberish. He doesn't know Kryptonian. So how does he understand anything that's being said hang in on, this story? I, I, I can this one I got I could fix for you. Give me one second. I'm just looking for uh here we are. Look at page eight. How old would you say he looks in that? He has a he's got a head of hair already. How old do you think he is? The baby? Yep. Uh, six months? Yeah, six months to a year. And we start talking at what? A year? Two years? Uh, I My don't kids know. Uh, way too old i don't remember when they started talking that's that's i think that's a stretch no no it's not because we learned in my issue that in third grade they're doing calculus well that's it okay so advanced that's that is true i okay i will i will give you that that actually that's that's a you know yeah that's a good comic book no prize bullshitty answer i can buy yeah I'll, i'll i'll accept that would I get a baldy if you were given a mouth for that? <laughs> the judges have accepted your answer. From Mooch Collin, no less. <laughs> Talk about predicting they, the future, huh? I wonder if they ever called Mike Carlin Mooch Carlin, if anybody yeah. ever. Uh... <laughs> yeah, they did. Because I, I, that struck me right off the bat. They Some folks would refer to him as Mooch Carlin. That is funny. Again, I've got to ask: Is Jarrell colorblind? Because this is this is a horrid outfit. The the colors, I mean. I, I love the outfit because it's the exact same one. You know what? I just noticed something. Did he have the headband in '53? Hold on. I gotta flip back now because I gotta know because I always love the headband and I just noticed it now that he's got it in '61. But I don't. Did he have it in in that story in '53? Yeah. Does he? Redhead band. Okay, cool. Yep. Does he have yellow pants in the other issue? No, he's got red pants. Yeah. Yeah, he's got he's got like an orange. He's got a yellow cape, like orange tunic and leggings, and then green trunks with like green sleeves. I, I think it's a sharp look. I really like that look. In I think he should get together with Alan Scott. But yeah, that, it's funny you say it because that's exactly what I thought. Is that the one in the one that he's wearing in '61? It does. It looks like it was designed by Alan Scott, who is we know has got to be colorblind. Could you see the JSA looking at this picture and they're going, "Oh, geez, what an alpha!" And Alan Scott's like, "That's a great looking suit. I love it's it. A bad outfit. Bad out. It is. I mean, it's just there's no there's no rhyme to it, you know." Every every piece of his outfit's a completely different color. You got a red cape, you've got a purple tunic, you've got red shorts, red boots, yellow leggings, and then b- like baby blue sleeves and collar. 
It's just, oh, it's awful. It's absolutely awful. It's like he just, like, threw together an outfit real quick. We're saying this, and we lived through the 70s. (laughs) When people really were colorblind. Well, see, I have a theory that that the first Kryptonian that we see actually stole his outfit, because that's, that's... the, the couple that's walking right there, that's Jor-El's outfit. The, the logo is different, you know, the triangular thing. But everything else about that outfit, that's the outfit that Jor-El was wearing in the prior issue. Page nine, second panel. Oh, yes, this is where the city is starting to, uh, they're, they're experiencing the ground quakes and the, and the buildings are rocking and breaking apart and everything. Is this Krypton or Baghdad? Because I can't tell. It's Baghdad. Yeah, Shock. I mean, look at those towers. Yeah. It's weird looking. Yeah, we talked about Superman as a phantom. I'm I'm at a loss on that one. Now, here's a big question. So, Superboy doesn't appear in this story, but he is. Where was it? It is mentioned here somewhere. Just I'm not seeing it right at the moment, but it was mentioned. So, but I'm curious, like really, really curious. So now Superman knows his origin story but it took all this time for for him to learn it and this is you know retroactively this is the earth to superman who never was superboy now i have read so many stories over the years of superboy where he clearly knows his origins so I want to know now where where did that come in? Where did when does Superboy learn of his Kryptonian origins and and how did that come about? I've never read that story and I'm I'm really curious now to find that and and discover that. Well, that's uh, going to be another episode at some point. <laughs> yeah, it would have to be, yeah, cuz that's that's going to be that would be quite the retcon you know, by that point, because, you know, again, here it is clearly establishing he's learning this information for the first time. But eventually Superboy comes by that information as well. Um, that's that's a story I've got to find. I've never read that um, when he's all done with the uh, with the Kryptonian stuff and tracking down his origins and all that. He says that compound gives off rays, which apparently can only affect kryptonites. Uh, they hadn't used the, the, the term uh, Kryptonians yet. He says, that's why it weakens me, the last survivor of Krypton. Now that I know, I can race forward to the 20th century again. Huh? What the hell year is he in? So he's he's standing there looking at his adoptive parents, rescuing him from the burning rocket. So he's an infant of, what, a year or so old, depending on if he aged during, during the travel or whatever, but assuming he's the same age, he's, he's between six months and a year old, presumably this story takes place in 1949. So in order to be pre the 20th century, it would have to be, it would have to go back to at least 1900, presumably even further back than that, say 1899. Right. So that's 50 years. Is Superman supposed to be 50 years old? No. 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 So it doesn't work. I don't know what this comment is of him going back to the 20th century because he should be in the early 20th century already. Right? 
Look, I, I don't know if you've ever seen Superman the movie. Have you ever seen that film? <laughs> Once or twice. Clearly, Kryptonians are not good with math, <laughs> despite the fact that they're doing calculus in third grade. Uh, I think we've established it's hereditary, right? He gets that yes. from his father, yeah. yeah. Because his father didn't know how many hours in a day. He he said, uh, how many years, hundreds of your years will have passed? And, and it was only like a couple. It took All you right. hundreds of years to get here, but the planet exploded in 1948. And now we're in 1978. So, All right. Are you ready to be slightly depressed? Because this is kind of a sad note, I thought. Okay, go ahead. Despite having learned all this information, he still doesn't know his own name. That is true. Right? They never say it in the story. Nope, they do not. Well, yet, didn't you? Well, that's pretty pathetic. Well, maybe it was hanging on a wall. Like, I couldn't read the tombstones. Maybe <laughs> it said Kal-El's room. Maybe? I mean, presumably there's things that are said in the gutters that we're not privy to. So maybe that's where he heard the name of the planet. And may maybe he did hear his own name. I I'm not sure. But, you know, just going strictly by what's on the page. Yeah, he, he still does not even know his own birth name, which I thought was kind of sad. And I was wrong, by the way. This is not the story that uh, that mentions Superboy as part of his origin. I think that's the next book that we're going to look at Um Actually, first book of next episode. You got thrown off because of the ad at the end of the story that says read Superboy. Yeah, I, I, I could, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Now, if you want to share, yeah, if you want to share thrills with Superboy, read Adventure Comics and Superboy Comics. Yeah, that's really odd, seeing as how once again here's another origin that did not incorporate Superboy as part of the origin. Second one in a row now since Superboy debuted. So that's that's kind of. Kind of what is this Superboy they speak of? I just read the origin. There's nothing <laughs> here about a Superboy. Exactly. Exactly. How cold are these Kryptonians when you think about it, though? The Lyra, the model ship. There is just room for you and the baby. Wouldn't you say you and John or whatever the kid's name is? Well, I don't know. I mean... Oh, maybe, I guess. I'm trying to... No prize. <laughs> Why we didn't get the name. Oh, How about on this other page where he refers to him as the little bastard? Oh, wait. That's <laughs> something else. The I feel like there's, there's, a, there's a different piece of dialogue here when they're launching the rocket. She says, farewell, my son, which she does say in most versions. But Jor-El, uh, he, he gets a little more poetic, and he says, you'll be the last survivor of our great civilization. Be worthy of it. That's that's kind of neat, and I don't know that we see that in any other version. Hmm. I got to ask you, what, what do you think of Al Plastino's art? I don't dislike it. Uh, to, to me, it's a, it's a product of its time. You know, I preferred the art in the last issue better. Yes. But I mean, I don't hate it. I don't hate it, but it's it's kind of like I, I think he desperately wants to be Wayne Boring. He's he's definitely aping Boring's style. Now whether that's through editorial mandate or 
you know, whatever. I, I don't know. But my only real problem with it, and it happens a lot through this particular story, is he often draws Superman with very derpy expressions on his face. I mean, the opening splash is an otherwise really good splash, except for the expression on Superman's face. And the one on page three, second panel, where he's feeling the effects of the kryptonite for the first time is really derpy looking. And there's there's a couple other ones like that, where he's on the phone, where he's answering the phone, and, and the guy's calling him about... Uh, you know the tip and he's he, again he's got like a just like goo kind of goofy look page three it reminds me of danny thomas for some reason yeah 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 it's exactly. like his face completely changes yeah it's a, it's a very uh i don't know, to me he looked like uh luke costello yes, or something. It's it's, even better. yeah he, it's just it's 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 very comedic it's like a comedy art style almost it doesn't quite fit with the because the other ones are pretty much on model. But when he's I, I think that's what you're seeing is you're seeing a difference between like, you know, for lack of a better term, house style and then his own personal style. Because when Superman is on model and house style, it looks fantastic. But then when he makes these these weird comedy faces that that are plastino's own style then he he just looks weird he you know with the weird agape mouth and all that it just and it looks kind of odd the clark kent shots look like kirk allen in the movie the serial it looks a little bit like kirk allen yeah but the superman just looks terrible yeah it's and on page uh seven he looks like uh Something possessed from the super friends. <laughs> What's kind of sad is that th- this is about the best Al Plastino I can recall having seen off the top of my head. I never thought a whole lot of Al Plastino's art. It, it, he was just never my favorite. But th- this isn't bad. But I think I, I like it because he is so closely aping Wayne Boring, who I who I absolutely love. So it, it's very close but where it's different, it's really different. And the other characters, I really don't see anything wrong with them. It's it's Superman that's the problem. Right. I mean, the the, the thugs, they look fine. Yeah, Jor-El looks really good. I thought Jor-El, Lara looks fine. It's just the, the coloring. Look, yeah. The Kent's really so old in this. The Jonathan Kent at the bottom of page 10 where uh, where they're taking the baby and she's saying, uh, from now on you'll be Clark Kent. He looks like the penguin right there. <laughs> he does. He looks like a skinny penguin. That's uh, that's pretty much all I've got on this. This one has been reprinted just a few times. Uh, reprinted in Greatest Golden Age Stories Ever Told, which I just it occurs to me I've never read that. I need to see what stories are in that. Superman in the 40s trade paperback and Superman the Golden Age Omnibus Volume 7. Yeah, that's what I'm looking at. It. Oh, okay. Get our handy lug in that thing around. <laughs> well, do we have anything more for this episode, you think? I think we're about it. All right. So just to uh, 
you know, for the listeners, if you if you kind of want to follow along with us next time, here's your homework. Here are the books that we are going to look at for wrapping up the Golden Age origins of Superman. So we're going to be looking at Action Comics number 158 from uh, 1951. We are going to be looking at uh, now the technical name of it is Three Dimensional Adventures number one, but again, it's better known as Superman 3D from 1953 and the volume three of secret origins. Now this was a book from the eighties, of course, but the first issue of that was the secret origin of the golden age Superman, which is, uh, if you've never read it, a beautiful book and I can't wait to look at it again because it's, uh, it's fantastic. And, uh, those will be the three we look at next time, wrapping up the, uh, the Golden Age Superman. Who's our next character along after Superman? We have the Crimson Avenger. Awesome. Something to look awesome. forward to, right? Absolutely. All right. I think that wraps us up for this time. Thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed it. Please give us some feedback on this. What do you think about this segment? What can? Uh, what did you enjoy? What can we do better? That sort of thing. So, cool. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>